During this, again, study on the doctrines of grace, I have been reminded of one of the accusations often laid at the door of those who hold to these truths. The accusation, of course, is that we are guilty of removing human responsibility with respect to the gospel commands. That really, if you hold to these doctrines, therefore you are holding to such a high view of God's sovereignty, if that's possible, But anyway, you're holding to a high view of God's sovereignty that you then, as a result, end up denying true human responsibility. They will say this. If God has chosen a people to be saved and Christ has died to secure their salvation, then they will be saved. We say, yes, that's true. Now continue then. Conversely, those who are not chosen will not and indeed cannot be saved. Thus, the accusation goes that there is no point in compelling all people to be saved. The accusation is that in our doctrines of grace, in our understanding of the gospel, we are thereby impinging upon the free offer of the gospel, or we are in some way diminishing human responsibility. This, of course, is just yet another example when man seeks to be wiser than God. The Bible is clear, abundantly clear that God has chosen a particular people and very clear that Christ will lose none in that company. Not one, not one of Christ's people will fail to be saved eternally. But the Bible is equally clear that there is a compulsion placed upon the church to command people to repent and believe the gospel. I sincerely hope that in my preaching in this pulpit here, you have never felt that you could take or leave the gospel. I hope you felt the weight of responsibility sitting under the word of God. I don't want any of you to uh, perhaps face a judgment seat and say, well, the preacher didn't make it clear enough. God himself commands all men everywhere to repent. The Great Commission is to preach the gospel in all the world to every creature. Not just to the elect, whoever they may be. Romans 9, of course, we'll see it in our future studies, maps out clearly the truth of divine election. But in the very next chapter, Paul asks the question, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so Paul has no difficulty in bringing together these true two truths, one of divine election, and the other of solemn human responsibility. You see, from the human respect perspective, the elect must hear the gospel, and they must call upon the Lord. But one of the most impressive ways in which this truth is brought to bear upon our minds is this section in Matthew 11 in our Lord's prayer to the Father in verse number 25. The Savior himself, Perfect knowledge of the will of God. The Father revealed in and through the Son. And so the Son prays in verse number 25, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things and thou hast revealed them. Okay, I've condensed the section there to draw the point. It is the Lord of heaven and earth who on the one hand hides things from some 
and on the other hand, reveals the same things unto others. Of course, the context is the detailing and the woes to Chorazin, Bethsaida, and also the work or the, the city of Capernaum. They are rebuked for their unbelief. And it's a mark of God's sovereignty that he chose to do his miracles in those places and not in Tyre and Sidon or in Sodom. The Lord chose to reveal his miracles in the place and the time of his choosing. And it's that which provokes the son then to pray that prayer in verse number 25, acknowledging the father's sovereignty in the revelation of the gospel. And so verse 26 says, Even so, father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. When it comes to the end of the age, those who are saved by God's grace will see the company of the elect. They will see the division of sheep and goats and they will echo the prayers of Christ on that day and we will all say together with one accord, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. We will not object to the sovereignty of God in salvation. But as the Lord outlines the sovereignty of the Father, without, if you like, taking a breath, metaphorically speaking, You see in verse number 28, he then offers himself generally, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. The Lord lays no stipulation to prove their election, Prior to this offer, to all who are there, having just upbraided them in verse number 20, upbraiding them for their unbelief, upbraiding them because they do not repent, he then says to that company, come unto me. And the assurance is that if they come, they will find rest for their souls. You see, in asserting a particular redemption, We must not conclude the gospel should not go out to all. We are asserting, please be clear, we are asserting a particular redemption. Both in election and in the atonement, there is a particularity to the gospel. But we must not conclude from that that the gospel does not go out to all. Tonight, if you're out of Christ tonight, I simply say to you on the authority of God's word, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But I don't know if I'm elect. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But, but I don't know if I'm called. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Do not let, do not let fears Of your election keep you from coming to Christ. But may your coming to Christ prove and give evidence of your election. Come unto Jesus and be saved tonight. Whoever calls, saved. If you call, you will be saved. These are things that we rehearse. We understand them. But we've got to emphasize them again. You see, I trust that in all that we've seen thus far, you haven't at any time thought that faith in Christ was not necessary. In all that we've seen regarding divine election and the atonement, in all of this, believing in Christ is essential for us to enjoy those saving benefits. 
We must come to a proper conviction regarding the truth of the gospel. And we must commit ourselves to the Christ of the gospel. We have to believe. Acts 13 says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Faith is essential. And so tonight the question is this. How does a totally depraved sinner come to faith in Christ? And it is the I in our acrostic tulip. The I, irresistible grace. Now you will note in your outline and in my announcement this morning that I did not title this sermon Irresistible Grace. I titled the sermon Effectual Calling. Again, this is the second of the five points, as we call them, that the name, perhaps in modern parlance, is subject to misunderstanding. Let me illustrate that again by going back to my well-known local denomination and their rejection of what they call five-point Calvinism. They say this, we reject five-point Calvinism, a fatalistic Calvinistic view that leaves no room for free will. Specifically, we reject the belief that Jesus' atonement was limited Instead, we believe they died for all people. Now listen to this. And we reject the assertion that God's wooing grace cannot be resisted. Again, I have said this and I I must say it again. I find it frustrating. Humanly speaking, again, before the Lord, I find it frustrating that a prominent church will teach its members to reject something they call Calvinism without understanding what the terms actually mean. That's not just, it's not proper, and it's deceiving. You see, nowhere did Reformed teaching give the impression that there is not an external call that can be resisted. The general call is almost always resisted, at least in the first hearing. We have never asserted that there is A general call that cannot be resisted. But the term irresistible grace has in this people's idea given the impression that we believe that people cannot resist the gospel. That's not, not what is being taught. But to help us with that, I think it is helpful to use the term the effectual call. Because what that is dealing with is the fact that God's call works. It's effectual. When God calls internally, that call is not resisted. He actually brings about a change whereby the person gladly receives the gospel. The effectual call. So as you think of this, you'll see just two two headings in our outline for this evening. And the first one is the necessity of divine intervention. The necessity of divine intervention. You see, in my avowed opinion, I trust grounded upon the word of God, we assert that salvation is of the Lord. Don't we? We remind ourselves of that all the time. Salvation is of the Lord. It is of the Lord in planning. It's of the Lord in its accomplishment. It's, in the, it's of the Lord in its application. It's, in the, it's of the Lord in its completion. All of these things are of the Lord. And so sinners... They only come to faith in Christ due to the intervention of God. There is a necessity, the absolute necessity of divine intervention. Now, as I want to develop that thought tonight, I want to show you that historically speaking, 
There have only been three main schools of thought regarding how a sinner comes to faith in Christ. That's the question. How does a sinner come to believe the gospel? And you'll see them listed there under three separate terms. First of all, there is the issue of Pelagianism. Again, going back to the early centuries of the church, again, there was this controversy between Pelagian and also then Augustine. And Pelagius taught that man has the ability to believe in Christ if he chooses to do so. This, if you like, is ultimate free willism. It's actually pretty rare nowadays. You'll see that in the next assertion. But of course, when it comes to man having the ability, I just simply have to point you back to what we saw regarding man's depravity. Depravity affects the whole man. The understanding is darkened. They are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart, Ephesians 4, 18. The understanding is darkened. The will is in bondage. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. The unsaved do not come to Christ because they do not want to come to Christ. The Lord says, I would have gathered you. But ye would not, ye were not willing. The heart of man is stubborn in the rejection of the gospel. They have not a will to come to Christ. The emotions are corrupted. By nature man loves the pleasure of sin. And they love pleasure more than God. I love what Spurgeon says. He puts it this way. There is no greater mockery than to call a sinner a free man. Not true. If we approach sinners of the gospel and say, you're free to choose Christ, that's a mockery. It's a mockery of the truth of God's word regarding their depravity. But the second heading I've given is again under the language of Arminianism. You'll be aware of that, of course. It came to its head in the 1600s and around the time of the canons of, of Dort. Again, a response to the teaching of Arminius. Now, this is much more common. It really makes up the vast majority of Christendom in terms of those who hold even to Catholic theology along with Wesleyans and Methodists there are all this some form of this concept now what what this idea acknowledges is the reality of spiritual blindness they do acknowledge a degree of human powerlessness but they then suggest that what happens is that God gives to men sufficient grace or often known as prevenient grace To allow them to rise above the fetters of sin. And at that point, they must make a free choice to believe on the Savior. And so it's it's God helping man's will to rise to a point where they are then able to make that free choice to believe on Christ. We'll see in a moment the major flaws in that thought. But when you think of those first two views, salvation is at least partly left to man everything is made ultimately to hang upon man's choice god has a plan of redemption christ has died to save sinners but the success of that plan of redemption is ultimately in the final analysis left to man's free will either absolutely so or with some help salvation is of the lord 
And both of those two schools of thought lead to the hypothetical possibility that Christ could have died and no man chose to rest in that death. Again, Spurgeon puts it this way. The cross of Christ is not put up there merely for every man to look at and then left a chance as to whether men will look or no. There stands the cross free to every soul that lives. But nevertheless, God has determined that it shall not be neglected. Jesus shall not die in vain. And that because God will make men willing in the day of his power. Which leads then to this third possibility. Until this reformed confessionalism. Uh, I'm not deliberately just taking, taking a big word for the fun of it. But I want to make the point and again remind you that there is tremendous consistency in the various Reformed churches on this particular subject. Whether it be the Dutch three forms of unity, and the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, or whether it be the Congregational Savoy Declaration, or our own Westminster Confession of Faith, or the London Baptist Confession of 1689, all of these confessional standards are in agreement regarding the nature of divine calling. They agree that the elect of God are so acted upon by the Holy Spirit the Spirit changing man's nature, that man is then made willing to trust in Christ. And man personally comes to trust in Christ. Naturally, all men resist the call of the gospel. But due to irresistible grace, or due to the effectual call, the mind and the heart and the will of man is changed so that they gladly, willingly come to trust in Christ. God works internally so that man, having this new heart and this new nature, gladly runs to Christ. It's all of God. Now, I printed in the bulletin again to help you the language of our own shorter catechism. And just for its brevity and its clarity, they say this, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade, and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. It's a wonderful definition that defines our text in Romans chapter 8. Where Paul says these words, Whom he called, them he also justified. Our minds are enlightened. Our wills are renewed. And the Spirit of God works in our souls in such a way that we gladly come to embrace Christ Jesus. You know the terms that are used there, they describe the totality of our renewal understanding our minds are enlightened in the knowledge of christ our wills once in bondage now renewed our affections note the term they use for faith embrace jesus christ my jesus i love thee i know thou art mine faith is embracing christ offered to us in the gospel the terms are deliberate they are precise and they are wonderful it describes the work of god and bringing a sinner to faith in Christ Jesus. And so that is my attempt to prove, at least historically, the necessity of divine intervention. But as we develop it further, please note, secondly, the efficacy of this divine 
intervention. This again is what we're arguing for today. It is not that there is no such thing as a general call that can be resisted. But rather, in several places where calling is mentioned, it's not describing the general call, it's describing an effectual internal call. Now here I do, I want to see and acknowledge the distinction that must be made. And to help us do that, again look across to Matthew chapter 22. Here I have to say that Again, this denomination that rejects Calvinism, that they have a point when they argue that there is such a thing as grace that can be resisted. It is that general grace, that general calling, when the gospel is announced and the sinner stubbornly refuses to believe the gospel. You have it, of course, in the parable given to us here in Matthew chapter 22. The language Jews, verse 14, for many are called but few are chosen there you have it you've got this in the bible itself an understanding that there are those who are called but are not part of those who are part of this glorious wedding feast so you go back to verse number three and you will see that in defining this call the word says that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. So the, the passage is dealing with the fact that there are many who are invited, called in that sense, but they do not come. There is a resistible external call. And I would argue that that call at times is referred to as the grace of God. You see, turn across, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Of course, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, you have the appeal of the apostle for sinners to be reconciled to God. It's an appeal, it's a general appeal for souls to come and be reconciled to God. Verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ that be ye reconciled to God, grounded upon the atonement of Christ. Verse number 21. But verse 1 of chapter 6 says this, we then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. Now, beseeches used in verse 20, beseeches used in verse 1 of chapter 6, and I think they refer to the same thing. The grace of God in this language is what Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 3 as the stewardship he received as an apostle, the stewardship of the grace of God. It describes the gospel. And Paul is warning his readers that it is possible to receive the grace of God that is the gospel and that gospel not bring forth fruit to be heard in a vain, empty fashion. And so, yes, without any fear of conviction, I assert there is a general call that can be denied. But that general call must not ever govern how we understand the word calling elsewhere in the New Testament. Because what we must see is that the Bible reveals a calling that is effectual, a calling that is certain. 
First, please note a proof text. And that's our text in Romans chapter 8. Please turn back to Romans chapter 8. There is this proof text of the certainty of God's call. Verse number 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. Now, I'm going to zero in on that text. But I don't want to ignore verse number 28. That there are those who are called according to his purpose. And if that calling can be resisted, then it's possible for man in their free will to resist the purpose of God. You see where you go with this? This calling is according to God's purpose. But if it's resistible, then... Those wise words of the king, none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Those words suddenly become less certain. Well, perhaps in my free will I can resist God's purpose. Perhaps in my free will I can thwart God's calling. You see, this calling is certain, and that's proven in verse number 30, because those who are called are justified. And again, the the whole point of this section is that all those who are called are justified. All those who are predestined are called. All those who are called are justified. All those who are justified are glorified. The whole point is the success of God's purpose. Without any possibility of failure. That nothing can stop God achieving his eternal purpose in gathering a people unto himself. That's the point of the passage. So there are none lost. But the question must be asked, how is a sinner justified? Well, we know. Remember, we're we're recapping Romans here. Turn back to Romans chapter 3, just one verse. Romans chapter 3 and the verse number 26. Again, in light of Christ's atonement, Christ's atonement is described by Paul As God declaring at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Oh, justification. What a glorious topic it is. How can a sinner be right with God? Not because of their righteousness, their filthy rags, but only because of the righteousness of another. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity Christ's life of perfect obedience. Christ's death, bearing my sin. That righteousness offered to me in the gospel. But how do I receive that? How am I justified? Well, I must be one who believes in Jesus. Verse number 26. God justifies by Christ's blood those who believe in Jesus Christ. Verse number 28. We conclude that a man is justified by Faith. So you go back to Romans chapter 8, where it says here clearly, Them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. But how is a sinner justified? Only by faith in Christ Jesus. Therefore, this work of God in calling is a work that produces Faith under justification. That's why it's effectual. Sinners come to believe the gospel. 
Again, you think of various terms or ways this idea is used elsewhere. You think of John's gospel. Christ comes unto his own, his own receive not. But those who receive him, they have the power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name, which were born of God. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom, you can't enter the kingdom. Unless the Father draws you, you will not come to Christ. John chapter 6. There's this repetition of thought. No faith without the rebirth. Who does that? God does that. No come to Christ unless the Father draws you. Who draws you? Only the Father. No faith without being called of God. These terms are being used in various ways, making slightly different points and perspectives, but they're being used to make the point that we only come to faith after the work of God. It's God that calls us. And God that leads us to faith in Christ Jesus. I put for your memory verse this week in the bullet in the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved the Lord, because God hath from beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God does not fail in his calling. He is not thwarted or frustrated in his calling. His calling is effectual and produces faith in the hearts of those he calls. It is not that general call that can be resisted in view here. It is that effectual call whereby God works in our souls. How does the sinner come to faith in Christ? Only by the gift of God. As he turn briefly to Philippians chapter 1. I just want to show you one reference. because this, this, this ties together what we saw last week and this week. Philippians chapter 1 verse number 29. Paul's point here, of course, is the suffering for Christ's sake. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, leaving aside the issue of suffering here, Paul makes it clear. Unto you, if I can word it this way, it is a gift because of Christ's work for you to believe on him. Now, I know I'm paraphrasing the text significantly there, but that's the sense. Because Christ has died... His death has secured your redemption. And because of his death for his people, his death has secured the gift of faith. He spared not his own son, but delivered up for us all. He freely gives all things, including the gift of faith. This is the proof. For Christ's sake, it is given to you to believe on him. There's no salvation, no coming to the Lord in faith without the working of God. But when God works, the outcome is certain. You see, God's intervention does not lift us to the point where we exercise free will. The faith itself is termed a gift of God. Yes, we believe. But the entire act is by the work of God in us. And when God works in us, Faith comes out of us. That's the effectual call. 
You know, if you've come to believe the gospel, God has done a wonderful secret work in your soul. You were dead in sin, but you've come to see the gospel truth and you believe the gospel. And if you do not believe the gospel, it is impossible without God working, without God dealing and intervening in your soul. That's the proof text. Very, very quickly, the pattern in the terms that are used. And here, I'm just going to illustrate this very, very quickly, because there are several terms that are used that really picture calling in different ways. They, they show us how God intervenes. I've mentioned one already, the rebirth. Born again. Born from above. The resurrection. Those who are dead in sin are made alive in Christ Jesus. The work of new creation. We're made new in Christ Jesus. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works. Rebirth, resurrection, recreation. Three pictures that are used of God's intervention. And when they're brought together, they all show the same thing. God alone saves. The party involved is not active. You cannot make yourself born anew. You cannot make yourself resurrected. You cannot recreate yourself. All the terms that are used, they are terms that denote God's work. It's God that does this work. And in each of the three pictures, the work is irresistible. You can't say, wait a minute. I don't want the rebirth. I don't want to be made new in Christ Jesus. I don't want to live. There's that irresistibility to those works. And the result is radical. A new heart, a new nature. The will inclined, the understanding opened, and the affections moved. Not assisted to work out self, but made utterly new by the work of God. Don't resist the doctrine of irresistible grace. As a believer, don't fight against this precious truth. This is the hope for a lost world. That though men are totally depraved, there is a God in heaven who is able and willing to work in men's hearts and call them unto himself. This is our hope. Now I take great delight in the assertions of Scripture. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I delight in the assertion of Revelation chapter 22, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. I delight in those things. The opponents of the Reformed faith, they take great delights in the word whosoever. I take great delight in the term whosoever will. For the truth of these portions is that no matter who you are, Whatever your culture, birth or family, whatever your sin, if you come and if you call upon the Lord, you shall be saved. You see, the great joy is in a God who delights in showing mercy to draw the sinner, to change their nature. So those who will not come, come. And those who will not call, call. Warfield says this, It is useless to talk of salvation being for the whosoever sorry, it's useless to talk of salvation being for the whosoever will in a world of universal won't. 
For the sinner who knows himself to be a sinner and knows what it is to be a sinner, only a God-will gospel will suffice. That's good. A man-will gospel will save nobody, but a God-will gospel will save a multitude. You know, we often think in our minds of the scene in Bethany. Lazarus dead and buried and corrupting. The people are heartbroken and the Lord stands before the grave and says, Lazarus, come forth. He's dead. He can't hear. He's dead and can't walk. But he hears the command of God and obeys the command by the power of God. God commands what he wills and gives what he commands. So, dear sinner, tonight, Christ invites you to be saved. He commands you to come unto him, to receive him and to believe on him. The gospel commands you to do what you are unable to do. But you are no different than Lazarus. No different. You're as spiritually dead as he was physically dead. And so come. But I, but I can't come, preacher. Haven't you just told me I can't come? No, no, come. Come to Christ and be saved tonight. Come and receive the gospel tonight. But, but I can't come. Oh, yes. Come. And you'll find you're able to come. You see, in the command of the gospel, the act of obedience and the ability to obey come together. It is by God's grace that you come. Come to Christ tonight. May God be pleased to encourage our hearts in his word. To give us hope in a fallen world. I want to sing tonight as we close our service. It is the hymn number 238 in your hymnals. 238 in your hymnals. Because in many ways it illustrates my burden and my heart from this message why was i made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced us in else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin do you know why i hate the idea people make the point they say well calvinism the doctrine of grace they make a sign that God drags sinners kicking and screaming into the kingdom. That's not it at all. We gladly, we gladly receive Christ because our hearts come to know Christ. And then from that we have the prayers. We long to see thy churches full. That all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Let's stand together please and sing two, three, eight.